0: Welcome to conversations with a wounded healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer living and working in Chicago, Illinois. On this show, I interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. We're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level from white supremacy, late stage capitalism and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here today. I'm happy uh, because the sun is going to be shining this week. And in the winter in Chicago, that is not a normal occurrence. So I'm happy about that today. And I'm wondering how your cold little hearts are. And I say cold only because it's cold where I am. It's February. It's a challenging time to be alive (laughs) in the world right now. But anyway, thank you so much for joining me and for being here. And if you want to connect more, I'll tell you my favorite place to connect with people is on Instagram. And we have recently changed the brand. So I have moved from Head Heart Therapy to Head Heart Business Therapy. And the new handle is Head Heart Biz Therapy. So please come find me Instagram, hang out, chit chat with me on there, post some fun memes, some thought provoking stuff. So come hang out. It'll be a good time. Speaking of thought-provoking stuff, so I have noticed about myself, has anybody else noticed this about me? Not that you're thinking about me all the time, but (laughs) just in listening back to some past episodes of myself, hearing myself speak out loud, I've realized, you know what, Sarah, you are kind of negative. And... I was like, "Hmm." if I were to describe myself, I would not describe myself as a negative person. But I feel like a lot of what has come out of my mouth in the past year or so has been extremely negative. And I was talking about this with my BFF, Sarah Suzuki, and she and I just happened to go on a little vacation together not too long ago. We were trying to find something to watch on TV. And of course, I'm like, murder shows, because that's most of what I consume. Not really murder shows, but like true crime and scam artists and political stuff. And that's usually what I am mostly consuming these days in terms of media. And she we watched a show together. She's like, this is what you're spending your time watching. And I was like, yeah, why not? This is great. And she's like, I wonder if that has anything to do with how negative you are. She's just like super cute, like tiptoeing around it. When I'm like, no, just tell me, just be honest. So that got me thinking, that I want to shift my relationship with what I'm consuming media wise. Because I used to consume mostly like healing content. And I I think, I don't know, I got away from that during the pandemic mostly, and then just started watching. There's just more terrible stuff on TV than there is good stuff. Let's be honest. But I listened to this podcast today. I probably mentioned this podcast before. It's an NPR podcast called Throughline, And the episode was called When Things Fall Apart. And they talked about the i don't know if it's a legend whatever the story that this old grandfather is talking to his grandson and he talks about two wolves one wolf is good one wolf is evil and they fight and all this sort of stuff and and at the end the kid goes so who wins and the grandfather says the one that you feed so i hear this and the whole episode of the podcast is essentially about the nature of Humanness and whether or not humans are inherently benevolent or malevolent. And at the end of the podcast, I was a little mad that they didn't, because they were like, this is going to be about hope. And it wasn't exactly. (laughs) But at the same time, it helped me understand part of what I think I've been going through. And I think that because we're in a really tumultuous time to be alive and there's so much divisiveness in the world. And all of the news that we consume mostly is negative that we can have this bias that humans are inherently evil or bad or selfish. I think that's what I've been sitting in. And it's like, um, it's gonna be a gross analogy, but it's like sitting in a dirty diaper. And now that I recognize that the diaper is dirty, I need to get out of it because gross. So if you have any recommendations of like, Good news. I should probably just do a search for podcasts on good news and just make sure that I am injecting something lovely into my ears and eyes because, yeah, and literally, you guys, literally as I say this, that's when the sun peeks out from behind the clouds. So, okay, universe. All right. I know I'm on the right track. Thank you. Okay. So anyway, that's kind of what has been going through my mind lately, but I am very excited to introduce you to today's guest because he is somebody that has been an unofficial mentor and cheerleader to me and my pal, Sarah Suzuki. And I am so excited that he was willing to have this conversation on the podcast with me. We talk about stuff that I was, I've was i also been thinking a ton about in terms of therapist training and, and all, all that stuff. So anyway. Samson Teclomerium is an industry thought leader with a track record for leading large-scale transformations that generated new thinking, shifted business models, and disrupted the marketplace. As a catalyst for innovation, Samson constructs clinical leadership models designed to navigate change in the behavioral health and addiction treatment and deliver results that improve quality patient care. So please enjoy my wonderful conversation with Samson Techlamarium. Samson, I'm so glad we're doing this.
1: Me too. I'm so <laughs> pumped, Sarah. This is great. Dad,
0: you just muted yourself.
1: <laughs> yeah. And the little delay I was like, Where's, "Where's that button? That
0: button?" <laughs> yes, the pro, pro performer, pro presenter that you are.
1: I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll find, find out. Yeah.
0: So to let listeners know, you and I met. Gosh, was it 2018? question mark
1: yeah in covid years it's about 22 years ago
0: right yeah so in portland
1: 2018 2019 mm-hmm, in in the uh the nadac northwest regional conference probably the last one i don't even know if there was any after oh, that oh really wow um, yeah oh yeah covid happened and they've been sort of delayed since then.
0: wow interesting and tell the listeners just because i can never remember what does nadac stand for
1: NADAC is the National Association for Addiction Professionals. At the time, I was the director of training and professional development and doing a training there and helping to organize the event. It was a great regional conference, Northwest Regional Group is like kind of their own group. And I met you there and I feel like I almost want to say your training was on this topic, wounded healer, right? Or self-care?
0: Or trauma, probably trauma. I hadn't, I hadn't Mm -hmm. rolled out Mm -hmm. the wounded healer one I did for the webinars.
1: Ah, that's right.
0: The NADAC webinars. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's funny when I met you, I was just a little baby presenter and trying to get my name out there. I didn't really know anybody and you were so kind and so nice. And I was like, is this guy for real or is he like just some corporate dude trying to schmooze me
1: it's amazing
0: yeah i you know you don't know and
1: you don't know yeah that's right
0: you spend enough time in addiction circles, you got to be a little savvy about oh, yeah. who you align yourself with. So, yes. yeah. So I was very glad when we got to know each other better. And then you brought on my buddy, Sarah Suzuki. And now we are affectionately known as the Sarahs, I guess. That's in the right. Organization. That's right.
1: You are in. You're in the in group. You know, our field has such a wide variety of presenters, you know, academic research presenters, experiential presenters, folks that are in recovery themselves, in addiction treatment and also a professional. And yet I sometimes navigate the expert world looking for like normal people.
0: You know? <laughs> so I'm yeah, like- Yeah, right, right.
1: I wanna be able to make mistakes, fumble around, you know, appreciate the right. research, but also find what really provides healing for people and also look at the vacancies in research, the gaps in diversity.
0: Exactly. And
1: where things aren't necessarily evidence-based, even though they say they are. I enjoyed a lot of conversations with you around that and realized, ah, oh, I found someone who like just thinks independently and is a normal person.
0: Yay. For no, I mean, <laughs> yay for normal, normal people that are weird. Quote unquote. Yeah, yeah exactly. There because we go. Weird is the new normal. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, tell us everything. I don't even know anything about your history. I don't know where you came from. I don't know anything about why you got into this field. So just go wherever you want to start.
1: It's funny. So I I always have to just own because when people Google me, they eventually find out. So I started as a quote unquote helper as a pastor, a really young, you know, at a young age. Yeah. I started feeling called to ministry because it was a youth pastor that kind of helped me. In my community, I was born and raised in College Park. In my community, you weren't going to go to a counselor. I mean, like what, you know, like we- College
0: Park, what state is that? College Park, Georgia,
1: not College Park, Maryland, the sports city. College Park, Georgia, where gang warfare was rampant in the early 90s and 80s. And in my community, it wasn't, it just wasn't a thing like going to see a counselor. Mm -hmm. So, The people who were accessible to us were the ones at church, you know, and uh, a youth pastor that was very up to date on hip hop and everything, like used music to reach out to our neighborhood. I love it. And helped kind of help me find some stability and safety. So when I first came into the helping profession, that was my entry point. But very quickly, like within a year, I realized I didn't know the science of helping. And when I went to visit people's homes, they were still struggling with a lot of pain primarily addiction and drug dealing, criminal activity. And they were doing it from a place of a lack of knowledge, but also severe pain, you know, that was being passed down from mm-hmm. generation to generation. Something yes. that I didn't understand how to help from the pulpit, right? So I went to get my degree and my license as a LPC, Licensed Professional Counselor, started a private practice, started working in community mental health and in the school systems And very quickly, I was training on multi-systemic family therapy, a family therapy model that was from USC, University of South Carolina. And someone from Phoenix House saw me and said, oh, wow, have you ever done clinical training? So that was my entry point to clinical training. I didn't even know what it was. I was an accidental trainer, you know. And I came into Phoenix House Foundation, a national nonprofit to do clinical training and build clinical training, mainly in our headquarters state, which was New York, But a year later, I got bumped up to director of national clinical training. And then a year after that, I built a national learning and development team for an expanded Phoenix house that was in 12 states, 120 programs, about 2,100 counselors. And so training professional development became my passion. I did like a little weird nerd math equation. I said to myself, like, (laughs) I said to myself, like, okay, I had a patient caseload of 30 to 40. I impacted 30 to 40 people. And yes, maybe the communities they're in, the families they're in, right? When I got into training as a clinical trainer, I had a group of counselors in a training and there were about 30 to 40 counselors who each had 30 to 40 Mm -hmm. patients. And I did the math and I immediately saw the impact. And so I became just as passionate about equipping healers to be more effective, more impactful, more accurate and precise, in the work that they do as counselors as I was in working directly with patients. Every now and then I've had a caseload just to stay sharp, to stay fresh and still work with directly with people in need. But there's nothing like equipping the helpers. You know, there's nothing like it, right? Like, yeah. and so that's, that's sort of been my lane, I would say in the last maybe 10 years has been in the learning and development clinical training space from NADAC as director of training professional development. Now I'm with BHE behavioral health group mainly in the opioid, dealing with the opioid epidemic uh, using MAT, vice president of clinical services today for behavioral health group and building clinical systems, clinical processes, and still delivering clinical trainings in a variety of ways to equip the field to be more precise in the care we deliver.
0: You are very good at your elevator pitch.
1: In our field, it's like, what, what do you always get asked? Like, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Counselor? Like, you know, what do you, I mean, I guess, I guess nowadays when people think LPC or counselor, they see you like almost doing like yoga and like mindfulness therapy at the same time that I guess that's what jumps in their mind, you know, interesting, maybe 10 years ago, it was me sitting in a chair and someone else laying on a couch, you know, but I always try to think what image do they have when they hear my title? like, okay, let me give them the ladder of how I got here, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have done the same equation that you did and definitely feel like I can make much more of an impact if I'm helping practice owners and training therapists and and that sort of thing. So I totally vibe on that.
1: Yeah. I'll try my best not to turn it on you, but you know, Sarah, <laughs> now that you you're, now that you're like
0: expert interviewer, Sarah's well.
1: <laughs> now that you mentioned the Sarah's at NADAC, I wonder how many Sarah's are entering the field right now, wondering some of the things you wondered, right? Like, and right. that's what I asked myself, how many Samson's are entering the field right now? Right. Wondering the same things that I wondered. And like, is this right? Am I doing this right? Is this helping this person? Why did that person react that way? Why am I reacting the way I'm reacting, you know? And like some of those questions that we didn't always get dealt with properly in clinical supervision or in grad school or, you know, in any kind of training and, and we're just left lingering. Yeah, I always hope that I can help connect the dots for for folks.
0: Well, that's why I love teaching too, because, you know, I guess we could have a conversation about that too if you have any intersection with um, academia, because I... Obviously, I don't fit into the world of academia just the way that I think and who I am.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: But the students love me because they love hearing real life things and, you know, I'm just fun, right? So they dig that. And I'm always looking for the Sarah's, the Samsons, right? The folks who are asking those questions. And unfortunately, I think in a lot of academic scenarios, that sort of curiosity is being trained out of them.
1: But when they come back into the field, the pain that people bring into their room will force that curiosity to become reborn. And that's what I've seen is that, yes, you have the formal, somewhat dry, overly structured education process that gives you the science. But where you go into the workforce, human beings will shake that Immediately, they will throw 22 curveballs at you on day one
0: <laughs> and they will not stop, yeah. you
1: know. And so, there is the science and the art of the work we do. I also haven't built quite a stable bridge yet. I network a lot with academic partners, but I'm not in that space. Mm -hmm. And it's probably the same reason as you. I don't think that way. We're in an age now where I know you're going to hear a lot of it in 2023, but alternatives towards education, credentialing, and certification is becoming a mainstay. It's no longer like this weird thing spoken about in the dark corners. Like people are being hired over others just by having some random, experience and credential. And then they've built their mastery, maybe in a non-traditional manner, but yet they know more, you know? And we've also resolved a workforce challenge in the helping field. We had a massive workforce dilemma this past two years where we could not find enough counselors to treat the people who needed to be treated, right? And so- we resolved that in many areas through the certified peer recovery model and getting peers in recovery to step in. And they're not providing therapy per se, but they're helping to navigate the system of care that honestly I don't know how to navigate as well as they do because they just right. came out of it.
0: Because they just came out of it, yeah.
1: Right. So they're actually more experienced in a non traditional way. At navigating the system of care that has evolved massively in the last two years, they know more. They are the expert in navigating that system, in helping people get to where they need to get and speak to who they need to speak to and fill out whatever financial aid application. There are so many things I would have missed if I don't have these peers. So they've been an incredible enhancement to the addiction workforce and helped to resolve the disparity between the people in need and the people who can help them. I don't know how I got off on that tangent though. I forgot what you asked.
0: I don't care. It's totally fine. We tangent here all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Like where do we start? Who cares? Um, (laughs) Well, let's talk about that for a minute because everything you're saying is amazing and wonderful. And I have personally witnessed folks who are in that sort of peer role overstepping their bounds and causing harm to people. And I am curious I'm guessing that it shakes out that this whole peer recovery support does more good than harm. I'm guessing. that Without a doubt. Yeah. yeah.
1: It just needs more regulation, more supervision like all fields. I mean, could you imagine a counselor that is in a state where they just had to complete 800 hours to prescribe medication, which, by the way, that exists? I won't tell you what state, but there's there's about 400 hours that they complete and they can actually get a waiver or certificate to prescribe mental health related medications. And can you imagine if that counselor goes to one of the other many states where that's ridiculous and they try to prescribe and they get a uh, ethical violation or their license gets removed or even worse, imprisoned, you know, for malpractice. Mm -hmm. So I think that that question you have about a peer, we need to look at them in the lens of every workforce, right? Like how hard is it to stay in our scope of practice and to keep those boundaries up When we're first coming into the field, it is confusing. We try to do everything. We try to save the world. Right. And it becomes sometimes chaotic to find your lane when it comes to just helping people. So you have a supervisor, hopefully. You have an agency, hopefully. Mm -hmm. You have somewhere that really helps you find that lane and stay in it. And you build that expertise outside of any kind of educational environment. I think for peers, it's the same. For peers, they need supervision. And unfortunately, they're getting supervised by people who aren't peers, So they're getting supervised by you or me, social workers, and we do our best. We help them understand their lane, but we're not a certified peer supervisor, which is a title that is existing in more and more states. I think 14 states now. Yeah. So I think the more supervision, the more regulation, the better. But even right now, yeah, the pros far outweigh the cons.
0: Okay, you just opened a big can of worms that I have been rattling around in my brain, which is great. I
1: love cans of worms.
0: Right, and I've not been able to have this conversation with someone who I think has all of the intersections that we can touch in our conversation. So regulation, gatekeeping, racism, ableism, I have been having... So so to back up, in I think maybe... Everywhere, but definitely at least in Illinois, there is a push right now to eliminate the LCSW test for a person to become a licensed clinical social worker. Mm -hmm. And on one hand, yes, the ASWB, they put out a report. It was shown that the tests are racially biased. Shocker, right? Yeah, right. right. Obviously they're ableist to people who are good test takers, right? Mm -hmm. So I get it. And I want more people of color, people who learn and think differently to be able to be social workers because they should. And yet how do we fucking regulate this shit? Because I I I agree with you and I can't tell you, Samson, how many times I have worked with a student who is completely unprepared and should not be working in the field yet. But I am pressured to pass them through. Everyone is pressured to pass them through because they're paying money to the university that has let them in probably incorrectly in the first place, right? Right. So how do you fix it?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's so hard. And like, I, I don't think that I'm the one actually to speak on that. What? I'll give you some thoughts, you know, but it's definitely not like my expertise, you know. But what I'll say is some system is better than no system. What we're doing today in reviewing systems that have racial disparities and have access issues or they get in the way of African-Americans and people of color entering into a field because of a test that is so dominant Eurocentric. Mm -hmm. That is such a common thing. Like me, my wife, you know, African-American communities, we talked about this for decades, right? We joke about it. It's just something we've almost gotten like numb to, Mm -hmm. you know? And especially we're talking about our profession, the ASWB. Oh, my God, Sarah, don't even get into the teacher workspace like what teachers have to go through to become a teacher, the certification exam and the amount of times they have to take it. It is brutal and it blocks the most gifted teachers from being in front of kids who really need them. My wife is a teacher. And so that's why oh, I speak about that. Yeah. This, we have the same problems in that field that wow. we have in professional helping fields where we do need to reevaluate the systems. You know, I don't know what the solution is. I don't know the solution is throwing it out, you know, because right. exactly like you said, we need something that regulates the field. It's there. We don't want it to be the wild, wild west, but we do need to open some things up. Right. And we've we've got to create maybe alternative paths I don't think experience should have only one measurement. I think that right. that is a faulty premise from the get go to think that someone who passes a test can work with people. Right. I mean, just that statement alone hopefully <laughs> right. can make us rethink it. You know, yeah. oh, they passed a test. Let's put them in front of 200 people who are going to die without the right kind of help. Sure. Right. right. That is a great idea. You know, like, are you kidding me? That kind of thinking is so limited. And again, it's so Eurocentric, right? Like, To think that they haven't passed the test of working with people, maybe there's other entry points that we can look at. You know, for me, I like the model a while ago. I mean, very controversial, but a while ago, George DeLeon and Dr. Mitch Rosenthal, who recently just passed, really helped champion and build the therapeutic community movement. When you look at the outcomes of the movement, it's such a nightmare. I mean, it was so damaging, right? Because of the lack of regulation and the lack of consistency. But when you look at the origin of it, it was a beautiful thing. It wasn't. It mm-hmm. didn't gain popularity for nothing. It gained popularity because there was something effective. And what it was, was a leveling process based on people's hours and time in recovery and time in helping people. And so it kept folks engaged in recovery and the art of helping others in recovery. And I think the spirit of that model has something that we can build on. In a lot of fields, when someone's worked for one year or they put in 200 hours you know, of helping people, they may have not been doing it with the right license or credential, but now they've got experience. Now, you tell me, is that person more or less experienced than the test taker who passed the test and has zero hours working with right. that same group of people, right? Yep. I think we really have to examine how we measure competency, how we measure confidence and expertise. And we've got to have some sort of a blended model for our blended population, because you're right. There are some racial barriers.
0: Well, and what I see happening now, too, is people who like somebody I I just I saw this at a, a podcast conference last year that this girl was like, yeah, I got sober and now I'm a sober coach. So they're like bypassing and just becoming a coach, right. And starting a podcast and like doing all these things. And I mean, it's wonderful that we all have free speech and everybody can have a podcast if they want to. And on the same token, who knows what work this gal was doing in order to be prepared to really support this population. Like there's so many ways to bypass. And I guess the other thing is like Our American capitalistic, linearly driven culture wants everything to be scalable, wants everything to be reproducible when what we're talking about is the art of being with people. And there is no way that you can just teach that by taking a test. There's no way that you can scale that appropriately. So it's like counterintuitive to the way our country works, the way that we need to shift it, right? You
1: did open a can of worms. You're right. Um, <laughs> That's
0: what we do here.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like not to knock the competing industries, right? But I am very specific to say certified peer recovery specialists. When people hear me, I don't say the word coach often. Yeah, and I don't mention recovery coaches. And it's again, it's not to knock that side of things. It's just to say that unfortunately, that side of our industry is so underregulated that it is exactly what you just described. Jeff Saturday, Coach of Indianapolis Colts, is showing us this season that an awesome rock star player does not mean you're an awesome rock star coach. Mm. It's the same thing in regular workspace, right? I mean, how many times do we see someone get promoted to a manager who only right. prove that they manage themselves really well and exactly. and it's like managing yourself really well and managing other people really well are not the same thing. Yes, taking good care of yourself and finding a path to recovery is awesome. Congratulations. Does that mean you also are now equipped to help other people in recovery? No, those are not the same thing, right? And so I think the Certified Peer Recovery Specialist Movement has done a better job at having every two years, they have to recredential, they have to complete CE hours. They have a lot of course requirements on the ethics of their field, on how to manage their own self-disclosure and how to maintain their scope of practice. They have a lot of training on community resources, navigating the system and pointing people to care care. The heart of that position is to show people who are coming into recovery to help expand their perspective of help. That, no, it's not just someone else who's addicted to substances who can help me. No, it's not just a white counselor that can help me, a black counselor that can help me. If I'm really in that moment where I'm about to end my life, where I'm about to shoot it up, where I'm about to do something really damaging, I need to have had a helper that told me, Samson, you can get help anywhere. I needed to have a helper that worked with me that expanded my perspective of help to maintain my own safety. And that's what we get from our peers is they point people to the right places, right? And so I hesitate to damage the word coach, but I also think that great players are not great coaches. And we've got to look at that. This isn't a business, right? It's people's lives we're talking about. You know, we've got to examine that in the credentialing space. NADAC, NCAP, they're doing an awesome job with their National Certified Peer Recovery Specialist Credential. And there's a grant uh, that started last year. And so it's about two years, maybe a year and a half, two years old now. That is the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence that has an archive of all the research, all the studies done and the credentialing packages in each state. And they also provide a lot of trainings. It's a free resource. And so I think going, going to the right places and help pointing people in the right directions. If I knew that sober coach that you just mentioned, I would have been her biggest cheerleader and said, oh, my God, you're doing the right Mm -hmm. thing. Here's a website to get you, you know, the right credential and the right supervision and some training. They can walk you through this path. Right. You can do what you're wanting to do. It just may look a little different, you know, and then that way, at least there's some ethical guidelines that they're practicing under.
0: Well, and when I think about some of the problematic people that I have run into in this arena, there's so much ego that they wouldn't want to do that anyway, which also is like
1: there we <laughs> a go. big indicator
0: yes. that you shouldn't be doing this work. If you can't humble yourself to recognize that you need some guardrails, you know?
1: Yeah, it's tough. It's like a part of me, like part of it is the beauty of America is it opens up capitalism can open up the creative spirit where someone is going to look at a way to completely break down a system just for the sake of breaking it down, you know? And it may make us think differently and say, oh my God, this was effective. The other part of me says, well, there's the power of science too, where this actually went through thousands of people of research. If it was done right, it included diverse populations. And now we've seen a path that can cause damage and a path that can cause help. That's the challenge is that, The humility forces us as helpers to say, there is a path that harms and there is a path that helps. There are things that I can say and do to people who are in need that can actually cause them significant harm. It can make them worse. And so it's like, we've got to accept that. That's the humble part of it. And hopefully we can point folks in the right direction because you're right. I mean, there's been, that's the wild, wild west of it. There's been some that have caused harm.
0: Well, I think this is where my optimism gets in the way of my being able to accept that human beings are just flawed. We will never be perfect helpers, right? Like even when our hearts in the right place, we're getting the right education, we do have the right certifications and whatnot, we can still cause harm too. And what a friend reminded me the other day, cause I was just harping about some student issues that were driving me bonkers and she's like sarah there are just going to be bad therapists out there and you have to accept that and i was like no i know right <laughs> i have this idealist picture this dream that really all therapists and counselors and peer specialists right whoever has somebody else's life in their hands is actually like doing the work and really showing up in a very authentic and humble and intelligent way. And that's just not reality.
1: That's right. Yeah. It's more like flawed people helping flawed people. And we're all on a different spot on the spectrum of being equipped to help. I'm a huge like comic book nerd from back in the day, you know, and you look at like you look at Bruce Wayne and the billions of dollars he can spend on these gadgets and how he can help. And then you look at Green Arrow, who has like a bone arrow. In some of the comics, he's rich, but it all depends. But I think of like someone who's an MD, and yet we have a lot of MDs that are called up in ethical board complaints and violations for malpractice, right? After 20 years of education, how in the world could education have failed? That's the thing is that the flawed human experience may put us in a position where we harm people because we're hurt, because we're dealing with something and we're not dealing with it well. That's where I'm an advocate for clinical supervision in every single arena because of the increased accountability. The two helpers that are the most unsafe is the helper who is not self-aware and the helper who does not have accountability. I think awareness and accountability are critical to promoting patient safety, and it's something that's underinvested in, unfortunately. We underinvest in clinical supervision, and the higher someone has their credential, the less supervision they get. Isn't that crazy?
0: yes
1: you know and it's like yes now now you're a leader no one needs to watch after you you know
0: what are you talking about like that's it's almost you have
1: more responsibility shouldn't you get more accountability
0: that's exactly why i hired a consultant as soon as i started my practice because i was like i need some help yeah 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 (laughs) well this leads very nicely into the question about whether or not you would consider yourself a wounded healer
1: yeah oh definitely When I look at each year, I mean, it's weird that we're coming into another new year, but when I look at each year, I try to dedicate adequate time to examining my own path of my self-work, whether that's getting back in with my counselor, getting back in with one of my mentors or clinical supervisors, or creating a new individualized development plan for the year that has to do with my own personal growth, right? And then I also look at my business growth or my professional growth, Being a wounded healer means we've got to give adequate attention to both, to the pains, the flaws, and the wounds that are there and probably won't go away. Those are the ones I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. But then also the growth potential, the skills, and the gifts that you've been granted on this world, hopefully to help others. And so it's like giving attention to both. For me, I put in personal and professional. My gifts are given to me in a raw form, right? My responsibility is how am I going to shape and hone those gifts to better my fellow man and my community, you know, but that's me. It's like, I, I think when I see wounded healer, it's like, there's both introspective work that has to be done, but you can't stop helping others. There was a time when I first entered this field, I had a mentor in undergrad and that was, this was more in ministry work where I just like hid, like I went into my dorm room and I was like done with people, you know, and you have those moments where it's like, you're a helper. Don't you love people? No,
0: Mm -hmm. not today.
1: (laughs) I have moments where I hate humanity, you know, and I have like a hate list. I can't believe people do this to people. I can't believe people do that, you know, and I was having one of those moments. And what he reminded me, he said to me, his name was Ken Sanders, you know, and I think he's passed away since then. He said to me that a leader can always go into themselves and take care of themselves, but they can't leave the people they're leading. He talked about the damage of taking on the mantle of a leader at the time. It was about leadership. And I'll I'll equate that to helping, taking on the mantle of a helper, of a leader, and abandoning or neglecting the people that you're charged with leading. It's not all that extreme. We look at so many things in the world as all or nothing. It's not like that. I have someone that reports to me that just seems that I have to take a day off. I've got to get out of here. I said, okay, well, before you do, go ahead and send an email to your regional director, your business partner, just let them know that you're going to take a couple of days, yep. set an out of office message, let people know to come to me. You know what I mean? So you yep. just do some of these like really, really small things to maintain that responsibility yeah. of a leader or of a helper and make sure that you're not neglecting those you are charged with helping when you have to come into yourself. Now, when this person came back, I immediately said, okay, listen, that was really sudden. And I love that you did it and that you spoke up and that you took the time. Let's look into the future and imagine that you're gonna have this again. What can we do now in your self-care plan to design maintenance? Maintenance checks, you know, where it's like, it's okay to have that sudden moment of, oh my God, I gotta get out of here. But if you keep having that, yeah. are you really taking good something's care of people? Working. And yeah, something's going on, something else is going on. So so I think I think having those moments to, support ourselves to look back the same way you would do with our patients, look back and reflect and get some learned experiences. You know, in the CBT world, they call it learning from a lapse or learning from a relapse, you know? And so how do we learn and apply something different to the future and create a maintenance plan that's more conducive to our wounds, to what we need?
0: Well, I just want to highlight what you said for every group practice owner that I have been dealing with over the past several months, because this is something that we struggle with a lot because we as mental health professionals have to be supportive of our team's mental health. And at the same time, we have rent to pay and contractors to pay. And so we need to make sure people are seeing clients. That's it. And that's accountability. It's saying, hey, I know you needed to take care of yourself, but how can we create more space or whatever it is? So this is sustainable
1: for you. That's what we need more of. We need balance. You know, it's like there's so much extreme thinking nowadays. And I think we just need balance because even newer counselors are coming into the field with Part of it I love and part of it is aggravating, but these very high expectations for how the therapeutic environment should wrap around them. And I'm like, no, like, actually, this is about your patients. Like, that's why you came into this field, because you knew that people needed help from other people. And so the way we manage them and the way we manage ourselves has to find a place of balance. That doesn't mean we're ever going to be perfect at it. It just means we've got to always be willing to examine where the balance is off and how we can achieve that differently in the future where we're not harming people, but we're also taking care of ourselves, you know.
0: This keeps showing up in the labor movement right now is amazing and wonderful, but I keep having to remind people I'm not Jeff Bezos, right? Like (laughs) I am not exploiting my workers, and neither are the group practice owners that I've been working with. Exactly. Yeah. I know at a lot of treatment centers, people do get exploited. And that's one of the reasons I want to work with managers at treatment centers to help build like an equitable like working environment. But yeah, there's kind of this backlash and I'm hoping that in the next few years ahead, there'll be some sort of writing of the of the backlash so that people aren't having these unrealistic expectations of their workplace. Because, yeah, that's it's it's serious. right? Now. Yeah, it is.
1: It is. Yeah.
0: And I mean, let's just blame capitalism in corporate America there because there are. In the corporate world, my husband was working in corporate for 17 years before he decided to go back to school and, and become a social worker. And, you know, some of the expectations that they had for them, like being on call all the time and all those sorts of things that's not sustainable for any human being. And yes, we need to in workplaces recognize there is a thing called mental health. We don't always have a hundred percent capacity and yet everything you're saying about accountability is like yeah. chef's kiss. Oh,
1: yay. Well, okay. So since we're opening up cans of worms, I don't know why we're doing it. It's winter. I don't know if people fish in the winter um, or what other use <laughs> of worms. It's there worm are. somewhere. Right. But since we're open, let's, let's go deeper with this topic. All right. Let's do so it. So here's it. the thing. We are now increasingly accepting federal dollars for care for communities. We're becoming certified CMS workers in a way by applying for Medicaid or Medicare funding for addiction and mental health treatment. We just got an awesome Parity Act passed. This direction of managed Medicaid or Medicare supporting treatment is way, way, way farther than we thought. I mean, it's, we're at a place now where most agencies at least have 40 to 60 percent of their patients still receiving treatment under Medicaid or Medicare. That means there are taxpayer dollars being used for the care we are delivering, which means there are increased accountability measures and responsibility because you're not just dealing with that patient and with that patient's dollars. Right. You're not just dealing with the Cerebinos or or, you know, Samsons or the managers of the world. You're dealing right. with a federal taxpayer whose money is being used for the care of someone who has been deemed in need of care and that they deserve the care that they need. right? So now that money being used is going to be regulated. And they are going to wonder, hold on, what are you talking about in there? They're going to want to know, are you having a conversation with mom? Is this something that someone could have gotten at an NA meeting across the street at the YMCA basement? Or is this actually a valuable encounter with a licensed credentialed helper? How are you demonstrating that to them through your documentation, through how you're caring for the patient, through how your hours are managed. And yes, there are business models and corporate models of productivity, of using data to see where your hours are going, where your time is going. That's going to start trickling into our system of care because people are going to want to know what in the world are we doing with these patients. And rightfully so, if their money are being used, shouldn't they be entitled to want to report that out? I think we're going to continue to be uncomfortable in our field for a little while because it's, it's not going to be okay to have this empathic chat with mom and someone being charged 65 to 85 an hour that is going to a federal taxpayer and someone just be okay with that. You'll notice CARF surveyors, Joint Commission surveyors, you'll notice accreditors and payer auditors are going to start looking for things like identified triggers, built coping plan, design relapse prevention plan. They're going to be looking for language in our documentation. They're going to be looking for On day one, the patient mentioned a history of suicidal ideation. So on day 90, we still need to be assessing whether or not this person has had suicidal thought. We are going to have increased accountability measures that are going to be honest, that's going to seem intrusive, but I think it's a good thing. I think it's helping us become more responsible. I equate productivity in the clinical space to the value of the care we're delivering. I think we want our care to be valuable. I don't want us to fight it as counselors. We have to embrace it. And we're going to have to embrace concepts like what you mentioned, that you may need to be professional and take care of yourself, not one or the other. Right. I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old in the house, right? If I'm stressed, is it responsible for me to just say, oh, forget this crap. You guys turn the TV on. I'm leaving the house and I'm gone for six hours. You know, right. That's not responsible. Those two individuals right. at that age, they cannot just take care of themselves in the house by themselves with no adult. There's a place where your self-care and your responsibility as a leader or a helper are going to clash. And when they do, do you understand the value of your role and what harm that can do to someone? Right. I always try to say we've got to balance that, but I still want us to acknowledge that, yes, I'm a wounded healer and yes, I've got to take care of myself. And yes, I'm in process of reexamining that now and making sure that who I've become and who I am is still getting what I need, but I'm not going to neglect my responsibilities to do that, you know?
0: Mm, preach.
1: I hope. (laughs) Hopefully I don't get a hate mail for that, you know? Samson said, I can't take care of myself. You know, again, like that's why I said, we need balance, you know, the extreme perspectives. Well,
0: right. That's the black and white thinking that is not serving anyone right now. Mm, mm, mm. there's so many other threads I could pull on there, but we're getting to the end of the hour. So we I are. want to make sure we respect yeah. your time. We've talked about a lot and there's so much more that we could talk about. So you'll probably have to come back again, but.
1: I'm down for it.
0: What juicy nugget would you like to leave listeners with?
1: I think there are two things that I always want to keep at the forefront for me. So I'll just share it with others is I always want to be able to have two arms, reach one arm back. I'm willing to pour into someone else, but also reach one arm up where I'm looking for mentorship, for help, for advice, for consultation. I never want to have my mind and my heart closed. And usually we do that because of pain, right? We say things like, I'm not going to take help from that person because last time they said this or last time someone told me this and that was wrong. You know, We make these choices out of a place of hurt that we close and limit and restrict the amount of help that we receive. And yet we keep pouring out help towards others, right? And so I, mm-hmm. I just want to make sure I'm always postured where I've got one arm reaching up, looking for guidance, looking for a leader, looking for mentorship, support, in whatever way that looks like, whether it's getting in a support group, or whether it's finding a new app that can connect you with people, whether it's, you know, reconnecting with my counselor, with my clinical supervisor, with my own sponsor, whatever that looks like, make sure I'm reaching out, but I'm always going to reach back. If you're a student, you've got incoming students who need your help. If you are an intern, you've got students who need your help. If you're credentialed, you've got a certificate, you've got someone who's studying for a test that needs your help. If you've got a license, you've got someone with a credential or certificate that needs your like. No matter where you are, there's someone that you can reach back and support. I think that's what I'm hoping for the next year is that I can give out more clinical supervision and consultation and coaching, and I can also get more. And I'm looking in different sectors. I'm not just looking in the clinical. I'm looking to corporate business leaders that have learned things that I haven't had a chance to learn. You know, a lot of people don't know, in fact, this is there's three more days left. If you're in the nonprofit sector, there is uh, an American Express Leadership Academy grant where they have an application online. You literally can Google American Express Leadership Academy. You can submit your information and you may get selected. In a few people that get selected, they get paid and you get sent to New York for an incredible week of leadership training from corporate America, from experts in corporate America. And I did that 12 Mm -hmm. years ago. And it changed my entire path. I don't think I would be a leader today. I wouldn't know the metrics and the data and the science of leading people. I wouldn't have known and appreciated that if I didn't apply for that, if I didn't get that. And thanks to some of the leaders at Phoenix House that got me in that program. But I say that because even today, we can go to different sectors and get help. And so I love the counselors now that are breaching out and going to like restorative yoga and looking for physical pain relief models that they can share with their patients who are trying to deal with an opioid addiction, an opioid use disorder, and they're trying to find alternative ways to deal with pain. And there are therapists who have gone through those paths just so they know where to point their patients to. I love that. So, there are a bunch of different ways to like blend what we do and help people by reaching our hand up to different sectors. So, I don't know if that that answers your question, but that's my, uh, that's my juicy nugget. A very okay. juicy nugget. <laughs> okay, I nice, love it. Nice. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And where can folks find you if they want to connect with you more?
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah. So I am not that great with social media. Um, Someone help me, please. No. So I'm on LinkedIn. <laughs> you can find me on LinkedIn easily. Just search my name. I've got my profile updated. It's Sam's Tech in LinkedIn. So you just put Samson Tech Lumerium or you type Sam's Tech, S-A-M-S-T-E-K, in LinkedIn, and you'll find me there. I'm very active in LinkedIn. I'm constantly connecting with my recovery groups there and leaders that I connect with, um, commenting on people's stories and just finding inspiration from people sharing like how many years they've been in recovery. So I love LinkedIn because it's very like it's to the business, you know, it's right down to it. I think Facebook has been torn apart by my aunts and uncles. So
0: (laughs) you're like, I'm not going back on there.
1: So if you want to find me, find me on LinkedIn, Sam's Tech. Yeah, thanks, Sarah.
0: Awesome. I just love you so much. I am so glad we got to meet and I am super excited for whatever we're going to do in the future.
1: Yeah, same here. Same here. I'm glad that there's a place that people can go to to talk about being a wounded healer. So thanks for setting this up.
0: Thank you. Thanks to our guest for an amazing conversation today. To find out more about today's guest, you can visit www.headheartbiztherapy.com/podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Klunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye bye.